There are three incidents that I can think of, and at least they came to mind rather quickly. Three incidents in my young life growing up in the suburbs of Chicago where it was not so much the event that made an impression upon me as the adults around me experiencing the event. That is what I tend to remember most. One, I could, I could put you within a three-foot circle of where this happened if we went back to my home in Des Plaines. One was the night that Sputnik flew overhead and we stood out just off the east end of our home and we watched Sputnik go over. And I recall, on the one hand, the wonder that this that the adults were experiencing, that this is a human satellite that we're seeing. And I also recall the fear. What does this mean that the Russians are flying satellites right over the United States? If you want a good, a good perspective of what that felt like, watch the movie October Sky, watch the first five minutes and you'll see that. They did an excellent job on capturing the ethos of of what was going on then. Wonder and fear. There was another one. Took place at a 4th of July parade. My sisters were in something called a color guard. I was excited that my sisters were in the color guard. It's some type of, of marching unit, a small marching unit, and they all wore uniforms and they had flags and they did competitions. But what I always thought was cool was if you were the head of that marching unit, you got to, rather than carrying a flag, you carried a sword. And my sisters had attained to that. So I'd, they'd bring that home and I'd show my friends when they weren't home. My, my sisters were home, would sneak into their room and go, pull out this sword. And they, we would look at that and it was amazing to some grade school children that, that my sister got to march with this sword in the color guard in, on a 4th of July parade. I recall the pride of my father when the color guard went by and my sisters were marching. But I recall something even more significant. It was when the military went by, led by the American flag. And I didn't understand it as a little boy. I remember looking up, seeing my dad, seeing something in his eye that said, this matters. My dad served in World War II in the Army Air Corps in the telecommunications part. And it wasn't that long afterwards that I stood at that parade, not having any clue as to what he had seen as a young man and what had taken place in World War II. But to this day it marked me that that mattered when my dad saw that flag followed by those military guys in that parade. A third event that sticks with me to this day took place at an 8th grade graduation. We had junior high school, which meant 7th and 8th, where they're in their own school by themselves, and at the end of 8th grade there was a graduation. The graduations, there were different things that some of the 
I, guess, I would assume more capable students were given the task of, of uh, reading or having a part in the graduation. I will never forget what I sensed from the adults around me. When Jay, I only can remember that his name was Jay, and that's only because he lived one block over from me. I didn't hang out with him because he was a year older than me, and I hung out with kids, other, kid, other kids. But he was right there next to us. And I can still hear Jay's voice as an eighth grader. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you, have which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And when he recited that, I recall there was a spirit among the adults of admiration because, quite honestly, he did a better job than I just did with it as an eighth grader. I can still hear how he said it. I still hear his voice. There was an admiration for how well he said this, but there was something else. There was a reverence that we had just heard a recitation from the Bible in a public school, eighth grade graduation, and it was treated with reverence. Why do I tell you that story? It had such an impact upon me that when it comes to the book of Psalms, I knew I need to touch on that psalm. Little eighth grade boy is impacting us today. Psalm 8 is where Jay was reciting from. By the way, the book of Psalms, as we go through this study, we're aware that we've been hitting one verse. It's keeping us moving through the Bible very quickly. But when you get to the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms are broken into five books. It just didn't seem like one Psalm could do this book justice. So I'm going to take one psalm from each of the five sections of psalms. So we'll spend five weeks in the psalms and give, us, give ourselves a little better sense as to what this book is about. So out of this first section of, of psalms, Psalm 8, the glory of the Lord in creation. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you visit him, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts 
of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. If you just look at it in terms of the psalm structurally, the glory of man is the lion's share of the psalm. It speaks about man's place in this universe, in the things which are. And it speaks highly of man's place. It speaks of the glory of man. Now, for my own understanding, I would understand verse 2 to be interpreted by verses 3 to 5. So that when he says, you have, speaking about man, he said, you have made him a little lower than the, than the angels. There's this contrast that has been set forth. I think that contrast perhaps is also being seen in verse 2. Here's what I mean by that, and, and you can argue with me if you'd like. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. I want to take you back to where we were at in Job last week, the beginning books of Job. You will recall that Satan's desire was to find people that he could accuse, people that he would have to say, that he could say to God, you got to turn this one over to me. This one's mine. And there was this, there was this battle within that angelic and spirit realm for those who were the enemies of God who constantly wanted to bring accusation against mankind and to gain dominion over them. And then when you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where Peter is describing how God has been doing this redemptive work and through the entire Old Covenant, and that those things that were written were written also for us. And then he says, which things the angels desire to look into. And my point in saying that is there's this, there is this some form of a dynamic that takes place that we don't always get to see but there is some form of a dynamic that, that is happening between the angelic realm. So what we have is we have man, the angels, who are a greater created being, and then we have God, the creator. But there is this dynamic. And what I'm understanding here, when he says, you made him a little lower than the angels, even though lower than the angels, we're being used to communicate something to the angels and to make God known to the angels through the works of God. And he says, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. I personally think it's a metaphor that humans are very small and very, very dependent and would have no chance at all when confronted with an angel if they had to, if they had to take an angel on face to face. The human would be like a baby, had no ability to do that. They're just would be wiped out by an angel. But God is using humans, metaphorically speaking, as, as the babes and nursing infants. And he's given them strength to reveal God himself to the angelic realm, and particularly to those who would be his enemies and to those who would stand against the human race and who want to dominate it in death and destruction. So that's how I would suggest that verses 3 to 5 inform verse 2. And then as you move through the rest of the psalm, you have that magnificent, 
that magnificent thing. That here's how God is working, or here's what man is called upon to do. Man's calling under God's direction. Man's calling is to subdue the earth. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. To subdue the earth. And friends, here's the deal. And we know that goes back to Genesis. We're not going to go look at it. Through the knowledge of one generation building on another, mankind has had incredible results in establishing his dominion. In fact, we're so used to what is incredible that we forget about it. How about something as simple as, I say simple, but as real to us as electricity? You know, Ben Franklin didn't live all that long ago when he flew that kite. And now look what we take for granted. See, we're only really aware of electricity if it's not there. If it goes out, then we know I can't turn on my laptop. I can't watch my TV. Oh, there those stupid people are again. They can't keep it running. But when was the last time we were amazed that it is there at all? See, we're so used to what is incredible that we forget about it. When was the last time we were amazed that, that we step into this room and think what electricity is doing? Electricity through it is magnifying my voice so you're all able to hear. It's got lights going so we can all see. And it's keeping this place nice and cool and climate controlled. Did any of us think about the electricity? No. It's just incredible, but we forget about it. And do you know if this electricity goes down here, you know that David and Judy's son-in-law, Jeff Connor, is sitting somewhere in Grand Forks and he knows what's wrong. And he can flip switches and do different things and make stuff happen to get it up and running again. And we just know it went off and then it went back on. But imagine how incredible it is that mankind has been able to harness this thing called electricity. And think about how incredible it is that mankind, how mankind has been able to harness it, to create it, to generate it, because we all know, and there's, there's discussions about the environment. I'm not going there. But we know that there are some means by which they use coal or gas or nuclear energy, wind, solar, are all different ways in which man has figured out how to generate electricity in order to do all the things that we take for granted. I don't, we, we have these little things that we, we plug them in the ground in our yard, right? And at night a little light comes on. And we just take that for granted. Oh yeah, I'm going to get one of those lights. Does it occur to us that that's a little solar panel in there? And it's Generating electricity, the, um, the understanding that mankind has of his environment is absolutely amazing. And contemplating this, forgive me, Darlene, I'm always drawn to Johnny because he loved to quote the scripture that said, in the end times, knowledge will increase. I don't know how many times I heard Johnny Rosen say that. And we see that exponentially 
in so many different areas. Fire. First harnessed to cook food and to heat huts and places like that. Now, we use it through gas and coal to convert electrical power or convert the energy in the fire to electrical power, right? Or mechanical power. So not only do we get our electricity through fire, how many of us drove here today in a car? If it's not, if it wasn't an electric car, do you realize, do you have to think about, the mechanics here, of course, all know this, that it was a combination of electricity and fire that got us here today. First, we had the power, the steam engines, where you just create steam and that creates pressure and they use that to push pistons and things like that and that got stuff going. But then somebody came up with this idea of an internal combustion engine. Now, how amazing, see, we take it for granted, but how amazing is it that, that hydrocarbons drawn out of the earth are processed... They are refined, so we put them in a thing called a gas tank, and they got a lot of energy in them. And then we put them through a system where we let them come, that, that gas come through little tiny ports in measured amounts into a thing called a cylinder. And that cylinder's got a piston that rides in there. And then we got something else in this car. It's called a battery that starts this whole process going. But once it's going, there's a generator or an alternator or something that generates electrical current. And then that just sparks at the exact right time. That sparks that gas that's in there, causes an explosion. Now we got fire. That creates a pressure. That drives that piston, which then we draw that off. We now have mechanical power coming off of that. All we do is turn the key. We step on the gas. All these amazing things are happening. And before you know it, we're heading in, into town 60 miles an hour. We don't give it a second thought. But that's the glory of man, people. That is the glory of man, that he has established dominion over his earth. You ever stop and think about the magnificence of transport systems that are in place? That's the glory of man to... To see that unfold. You take the fire and the electricity in these, in these big engines. And then you combine it with, how about this one? To us it's simple. We understand it. But making steel float. Think about it. We've, we've learned how to make steel float. How, you, ever, you wonder about that? How is it that if you take an axe handle, you drop it in the water, you expect it's going to sink? Because it's just going to sink. But why is it that we have huge, huge ships? Gene Fulton used to ride on ships that were 600, 800 feet long, were they, Gene? Something like that? Then they're longer than that now. That's exactly right. I think they're up to 1,100 or more even. That's a fifth of a mile, people. And they're made of steel. And then what do we put in them? Well, if you go over to Duluth, you find out we put more steel inside of them. Think about that. Now, I understand that concept of displacement of water. I understand that it works. But somebody had to figure that out and go, huh, what if we were to do this? And it's only in understanding that and being able to work with the steel that you're able to make boats that big because you couldn't make a boat that big out of wood. And if you did, you sure couldn't haul anything with it because it would just break apart. So mankind has been able to do that. So he makes these huge steel boats powered by electricity and fire... 
pushes them across the ocean with these big containers on top of them. And then when they get into a port, like down in Tallahassee, Florida, these ships come into these docks, and five stories up is a man sitting on a crane. And this crane goes back and forth over that, and through a computer system, another amazing thing, a computer system drops down and is able to, through the use of hydraulics, another amazing thing, this is all man's glory, friends, able to move these things around, take the ones off that they need to take off of that ship, and then put new ones on because more is going to be shipped out, and that ship comes in, goes out inside of a couple hours, and it's heading back out to sea. That's the glory of man to have developed this. And those containers that got dropped off in Tallahassee, those containers then get put on trains. Have you noticed they're making trains awfully long? Have you seen that? Has any of you noticed that? I hadn't noticed that over the last number of months. These trains are huge. I read an article on it the other day. They're starting to push them three miles in length. But in order to do so, they've got to put an engine in the middle, and then they have pushing engines in the back, and now they've got to understand, what, do, what are those forces all about? Because, you know, you can only drag so much. You, you think about that engine pulling that first car, right? That clicker thing, they go ding, 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 right? Boom, you hear them lock up. Well, that one's got to haul all the weight behind it. At some point, it can only haul so much weight. So what do they do? Put an engine in the middle. But why are they doing this? They're doing this for efficiencies of money and time. But you watch a train that goes two, three miles long. You see it right here. That's the glory of man. See, we're so used to what is incredible, we forget about it. Another train that went by. Phones. Now, I've talked to you about the magnificence of phones before, but I haven't done this, you see. Um, this is, I love my daughter, and this is the truth. This is what the first thing I got this morning from her, and when was it? I woke up this morning, 6.52, I have this message from her. It says, preach good for Jesus today, S1. That's what we call each other, but you don't need to know about that. Uh, it's just a long story that it doesn't add anything to. And please greet all my Minnesota friends and tell them I said hi and I love them. She means you. So Denea is sending you greetings this morning, okay? She says hi and she loves you. All right, but that came on my phone, right? So, you think, oh, it's a phone. Yeah, text message. What's so amazing about that? Guess what? I'm going to take your picture, and I'm going to send... Oh, just stop. This is not as amazing when you get these things that interrupt you, okay? But I'm going to take your picture. All right? So, I just took your picture. And I'm going to send it back to her. And I'm going to say... Will you tell her hi? Can I? Okay. All right. They say hi. Now think about this, friends. Think about this. We take it for granted. But this is the glory of man. That I just took a picture and sent it in response to a text message I got to my daughter and it's in her phone right now. Amazing. This is the glory of man. But we're so used to what is incredible that we forget about it. And you know all the other things that a phone can do. Here's an area to think about. Because back in the day, right, it's always, been, it's always been there. What about in the area of warfare? 
Old Testament times, you know, you had extra, you had extra advantage if you could have chariots. No, and they were only good in flatlands. Chariots didn't help you a lot and if you were fighting up in the mountains. All right. But what else did they have? It's spears, slings, bows, catapults. Now, what is the point of all of this? The point of all of this is to be able to inflict harm upon your enemy from a distance. Because when you get in there, you know, right there, uh, shield to shield and sword to sword, it gets pretty tough and pretty bloody. So if you can, if you can knock out their defenses from a distance and you're behind all of this, isn't that great? And just look what man has been able to do. Did you hear the story that it took place, I think it was a couple months, a few months ago now, I don't recall exactly, where Donald Trump was sitting with Xi Jinping from China, president of China. And he get, Donald Trump gets word, and then he says to Xi, he says, we just launched, and I, it was either 57, 58, 59, somewhere in their missiles at ISIS. I just want you to know. Okay. And later, now, how much of it is his, he tends to exaggerate a little bit maybe. But just think about this. Attacking your enemy from a distance, right? This is from hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And later he said, and every one of them hit their target. That's the glory of man. That he is able to have dominion over the things of the earth. Television. You watch television, I know you do. Except sometimes we get so used to what's incredible, we forget about it. How many of us have a dish? You have a dish of some sort, right? Come on, you can raise your hands, it's okay. Mine's up. Okay, don't, I'm not going to sit there and go, oh, you have a dish, aren't you a sinful person? <laughs> All right? But a lot of us have dishes. Do you ever think about that? You get this dish, you, settle, you stabilize it, and then you point it in a direction, and you know what you're doing, you're pointing it at a satellite. Do you ever think about this? And for years, you watch your dish. And it stays pointed at a satellite. Where's the satellite? Satellite's out in space. How can this be? Everything in space is moving. Yeah, that's moving. And they have been able to figure out, technology-wise, how to put it in what's called geosynchronous orbit. So that it's moving with the Earth. So relative to the Earth, it doesn't change position. But it's moving in huge ways. And we just turn on our television. And the only time we notice if something, even think about the satellite is when the storm comes and it starts to pixelate. Oh, I can't watch TV. <laughs> but do we ever think about how amazing it is that this satellite stays there? We stay fixed on it and, yeah. We're so used to what's incredible, we forget about it. Google Earth. When Mark and Forrest were here, wonderful young men, one from Korea, one from Taiwan, they were here, and I finally had a chance to have them in my Sunday school class. So I said, I've got to find out where you guys are from. So what did I do? We hop on Google Earth. And Forrest takes me not only to the town in which he lives with an aerial view, he takes us down to a street-level view, and he points and says, that's our apartment. Right there is where I live. We're so used to what's incredible, we forget about it. We just got a, a prayer concern for, for Edie. And we heard 
that what the plan is a week from Tuesday is they're going to go in here and they're going to remove the upper lobe of her left lung. And we all went, well, we'll pray for her. Do we stop for a moment to think how incredible that is? And we fully expect she's going to come through just fine. And last week I made reference, and um, I did not know she was with us, but that Maddie, okay, I made reference to Maddie and, and what she had been through. And uh, by the way, I had gotten permission from her dad to say that before mentioning her, and, and uh, so I didn't, I didn't just throw that out there. Um, but here she is because of her cancer treatment. That little girl exists because there's someone else's liver that she has in her. We're so used to what is incredible, we forget about it. I got to stop right there because I got more. Mankind has done an amazing job in this task of having dominion over the earth. See, this, the animals, they're still doing what they were doing back in Old Testament days, aren't they? They eat, they sleep, they reproduce, and then there's a new generation of them next season. But mankind has shaped this earth. He has transformed his world. This is the glory of man. The glory that God ordained you, you have made him to have dominion over all things. Phenomenal. Psalm 8, as the psalmist reflects, as David reflects, on how, what the incredible things that, that man is called to do, and we have centuries to look back and see how man has fulfilled that. This is the glory of man. An amazing thing. But although the glory of man is, when you look at nine verses, verses 2 to 8, all deal with man in all of this, although the glory of man is the lion's share of the psalm, it is not the point of the psalm. Psalm 8 is making this statement. The glory of man, and it is real, the glory of man extols the excellence of God. The glory of man extols the excellence of God. See, it's, it's fitting, friends. It's appropriate for us to be amazed at what mankind has done. But the greater glory must go to God because God is the one who gave mankind the ability and the commission to rule over the earth. Because if you look at the first and last verses, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Man's glory exists within the realm of earth. But God's glory is above the entire universe. And it finishes repeating that thought in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. God's greatness is demonstrated, is seen. His image is made manifest in man's work over the earth, man's dominion. Because God gave him the ability and the commission 
to transform his world. Now here's where we're going, friends. We are in desperate need to recover the applicable truth of Psalm 8. This would be the first thing that comes to mind, or one of the first, would be this. Our accountability to God will once again become an effective part of our public discourse, not simply a trite means of scoring political points. Back to Jay. When he quoted Psalm 8, and it was palpable to me in that room that the adults appreciated how well he recited it, but more than that. They loved the idea that the Bible was quoted in a public school graduation. And we have thrown him out of our public discourse. If we understand the applicable aspects and the applicable truth of Psalm 8, we would get back to him seriously being a part of our public discourse. This thing called Babylon B, it's a Christian, it's a Christian satire uh, you can find on the internet. Here's what they wrote this last week. It's satire, friends. Okay. Report, Democrats, Republicans, deeply divided on, how, on exactly how to misinterpret the Bible. A new report performed by a coalition of Christian theologians confirmed Monday what many have already suspected, that the nation's Democrats and Republicans are more divided than ever before over exactly how the Bible should be misinterpreted, misapplied, and misused to support their own political agenda. It goes on from there, but I won't read anymore. Oh, but friends, what would this nation be like if once again we recovered a sense nationally and in our public discourse of taking seriously our accountability to God as did our founding fathers? Psalm 8 could give us great insight. That's one thing. Recovering the truth of Psalm 8 will prevent us from becoming fools. You know, the scripture says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I can never escape in in these kinds of discussions. I can never escape Romans 1. In Romans 1, we read this because we've talked about man and his role in the creation, right? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, that's God's, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We see God's handiwork in creation. And God says, he has been so clear in what he has revealed that we are without excuse. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, because he's evidenced everywhere, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. 
Paul's writing at a time when it's not like people abandoned the belief in God. They just created gods out of animals and human things, and they combined them together, and they created their own gods. And he says that's a foolish thing to do because God has revealed himself. We go about it a little different in this day and age. We just decide there is no God. Every bit is foolish. Richard Dawkins is on record as having said he just doesn't see the need for God. Why? Because he's a scientist. And he can, dis- he can determine all truth through science. Not true. Not true. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And we could avoid becoming fools if we recovered our understanding of Psalm chapter 8. Recovering the truth of Psalm 8 will keep us in a right relation with creation. We have people who are trying to tell us we're equal to the animals or we're less than the animals. No, there's an order to this thing. We have the creator God. We have an angelic realm who is way more significant than we are. We have ourselves and we've been given dominion over the animals and they are below us. We are not on the same level with the animals. Sorry, but there are people trying to convince us that that's the case and they are wrong. Fourthly, recovering the truth of Psalm 8 will call us back to worship because we will recognize our need for Him. You see, friends, we're so used to what is incredible that we forget about it. We're so used to who we are as men and women, and we're so used to the amazing things around us. We're so used to these things that we can come to a place where we don't even see our need for God. And it's God that has made us incredible. Because the point of the psalm, the point of the psalm is that man's glory as he enters into dominion over the earth extols the excellence of God. And we can easily just kind of forget that. But Psalm 8 would call us back and say, you know what? We need to regularly and always and without fail and with total abandonment, we need to remember that we are completely contingent beings upon the creator God of the universe. And the only reason we have all these amazing things around us is because he gave us the ability that he commissioned us to have dominion over this earth. But friends, this is why we just sang a little bit ago, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. Right? Because we recognize from Psalm 8, God has made us who we are. And he is worthy of our praise. His glory, the psalm says, is above the heavens. Amen? Amen. We have a great and marvelous God. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself in and through and to mankind. But Lord, we have taken for granted. We have forgotten how incredible it is that you have made us so that we can reflect your glory, so that we can show dominion which reflects your dominion because we've been made in your image. And so, Father, we pray that you will deliver us from that, that we might humble ourselves before you once more, not only individually and not only in this church, but Father, as a nation, that we would humble ourselves before you and recognize we 
we are only a small expression of how excellent you truly are. We ask in Jesus' name.